Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're trying to do during the SALT Talks is replicate the experience that we provide at our global conferences, which we host twice a year in the United States and internationally. And what we do at those conferences and what we're trying to do on these talks is provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we are thrilled today to welcome you to the fourth installment of our, of our pandemic venture investment series, where top entrepreneurs, investors, and business leaders dive deep into the challenges and opportunities arising from the pandemic crisis and discuss breakthrough technologies that address issues from coronavirus prevention and cure to social distancing and food supply. This series is presented in partnership with Our Crowd, which is a leading global venture investment platform. Today's episode is titled Cybersecurity and Pandemic Accelerated Digital Transformations, and it features Ronan Yehashua, the Chief Executive Officer of Morphosec, Mark Gazet, the Chief Executive Officer of Theta Ray, and Kafir Kimi, the Chief Executive Officer of It's Mine. And today's episode will be moderated by our crowd's venture partner for cybersecurity, Ron Moritz. Just a reminder, if you have any questions today for any of our panelists or our moderator, please enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen on Zoom. And now I'll turn it over to Ron to conduct the interview. Thank you, John, and welcome everybody to the fourth episode of the Pandemic Venture Investment Series, where we will dig into business challenges and technology solutions in the shadow of COVID-19. As John said, I'm Ron Moritz. I'm the cybersecurity venture partner with equity crowdfunding firm, Our Crowd. And I'm thrilled to be moderating today's panel discussion with a focus on cybersecurity. Our crowd is a global venture investing platform that provides both institutions and individuals with an opportunity to invest in and engage in emerging technology companies. In fact, with over $1.4 billion in committed funds and 200 portfolio companies, three of which are joining us today, our crowd is the most active, in venture, active venture firm in Israel. I'm joined today by the founding CEOs of three important cybersecurity companies whose solutions are being used by organizations to prevent and defend against always evolving innovative attacks that challenge our business operations and service delivery. Like nearly every company, each of our guests has been forced to adjust strategies, plans, and forecasts this year. And each CEO has had to navigate through this disruptive economic cycle with little to no academic or business press compass. I've been looking forward to this opportunity to talk to my colleagues here all week and dig into their own experiences, observations with respect to the cybersecurity market and leadership response. So let's get this panel started. Kfir Kimi is the founder and CEO of It's Mine, whose mission is enabling organizations to prevent, uh, I'm sorry, to meet their responsibility as caretakers of sensitive information by preventing data leaks. Even before COVID-19, organizations have been pushing through yet another technology refresh cycle with cloud migration being a leading driver. And at the center of many of these digital transformation efforts is of course data. Data protection is a requirement for every organization and daily challenges range from ransomware where data is locked through breaches where sensitive data is released. 
There's been much written and said about how this year's pandemic has changed so many aspects of what was previously thought to be the normal in both our personal work lives. Kfir, what are some of the challenges you've observed that impact data protection? So um, thank you very much for, for, for having me and it's great to be here. Um, I think that one, one of the things that we see is companies, first of all, needed to move to the cloud faster than they wanted. Uh, we, we see companies that, uh, that nearly, you know, their, their employees didn't have a computer at home uh, or internet connection. And now because 100% of employees working from home, they first of all needed to give them the equipment, they needed to connect them to the internet. And they also needed uh, to move to the cloud in much faster way. So we have one of the customers, her healthcare in the US, that needed to move to the cloud in less than three weeks. Uh, the, they, they were expecting to have one year of movement to the cloud and just doing it in three weeks was first of all, you know, making our employees capable to do the same work that they did at, uh, at the office. Uh, now to do it at home, what happened with our company data, where it is living, what people are doing with it. That's one of the major challenges that they see where data is scattered everywhere. No, I think I think it's actually remarkable the changes we have seen. Uh, in some cases, you mentioned acceleration uh, beyond what was planned, and I think many of us uh, actually do connect on a personal level uh, to many of these changes. Whether it's having uh, children uh, at home on Zoom or uh, having our uh, interaction with our colleagues over Zoom, uh, it seems like the whole world is around Zoom these days. But what about the attacker? Are they uh, also getting together uh, over Zoom? Uh, <laughs> these changes and adjusted their strategies in response? Have they discovered and pursued new ways to overcome the data protection defenses? Uh, what have you seen? So, so, so first of all, of course, the, 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 the attack vector is becoming larger, both from, uh, from external attackers that now can attack the employee's router at home that they haven't changed the password and, and even don't know how to do it, uh, or to use, you know, uh, you know, other devices or, or even other people that people that not necessarily the, the traditional hackers that have long history in IT, it could be kids that are playing around with, uh, with uh, darknet uh, uh, solutions that can provide them capabilities to encrypt data and taking ransomware for, for companies. Uh, and we see that in numbers of ransomware attacks that are not very sophisticated running all over the world. Um, so, so yes, the, 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 the ways to attack companies becoming, you know, I, I don't know if it's if saying it's easier. I'm not sure that it's easier, but, but it's definitely more widespread and creating much more vectors of attack that, you know, when we sat in the office and have control on each and every device that we had, it looked completely different from the cybersecurity people. I, I think it's not only that is expectation from from the company not to create uh, downtime, uh, to allow the people to work, to 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 be careful with how much uh, blocking the companies are doing. Uh, th that that balance become even more critical when when we have one hundred percent of employees working from home. And I think you're right. Um, I'm going to shift over to Ronen Yoshua. Ronen, of course, uh, the founder and CEO of Morphosec. 
And uh, I've actually uh, uh, known Ronen for many years, and, and I know what gets him fired up. Uh, all you have to do is ask him who prevents the most dangerous cyber attacks, and he'll jump up and down and tell you that he does. So we'll start, we'll start off uh, a little bit more slowly with Ronen today uh, and continue talking about this uh, remote employee issue that uh, Kfir actually uh, raised. Uh, working remotely, of course, is not new. And my own personal motto has been for many years, a good day is one where I don't see the inside of my car. Anybody who's talked to me over the last uh, decade or so has heard me say that. Uh, Ronen, with Fast network connections and more workers, uh, contractors, customers, partners, all of them leveraging personal computers to access the company's applications from anywhere, from everywhere. How are organizations reacting and what are they doing? What have they done to ensure controls are in place to prevent these attacks? So, of course, everyone, I think uh, what we've seen uh, all over the place is that in the early days, everyone got actually into a big shock. Why shock? Because uh, imagine, you know, endpoint workstation is a major door for every cyber attack. Uh, that's the main door for any sophisticated attack. And, uh, you know, for years, uh, customers were uh, used to build a certain architecture of defense over those endpoints, actually assuming that those endpoints are within a certain perimeter. Uh, so imagine that you are building you know, you have a, a military camp and you're building all kinds of fences, another fence, another fence, another fence, and you're feeling safe and great. And suddenly in one day, everything goes out of this camp outside of the fences. Everything is, everyone is out, out the perimeter you built for many years. How do you cope with that? It's a nightmare, just a nightmare. And uh, and so, so at first we've seen everyone you know, uh, uh, trying to understand actually how to allow them to walk, right? How do you take the PCs, the workstation uh, out of the uh, office into the home? And for some, how you allow them to walk from their home PCs and then moving to cloud application, as Kfir mentioned, a huge movement there. Uh, but still, there's an endpoint, there's a station, someone walk on that. He gets email, he browses, he, he's connected to the network at the end of the day of the organization, and he's totally exposed, totally exposed. Uh, so that was a big shock for everyone. So uh, what we've seen that some is taking immediate actions like uh, VPN, VPN, the, the all known VPN, which was almost neglected uh, through the several recent years, become a hero. Again, then everyone jumped on that, but VPN has its own issues and the, uh, from operational perspective and from a security perspective, it's not, it's not perfect. It's there, but it's not perfect. Uh, we've seen uh, customers uh, which used VDI, virtual desktop, which we'll talk later on, enhance the usage of it, hoping it will give them more security, will able to manage centrally uh, the virtual endpoint. Now, at the inside the perimeter, Kind of, uh, and uh, but that's uh, you know and 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 understand whether the the uh, endpoint protection tools they had uh, are manageable. Can they manage? They really manage them when they're outside of the perimeter because they, those tools are so complex and they have so many operational complexities that they were got to use to do to manage them when they were in the perimeter. But now when they're outside, it's a it's a hassle. For example, updates. Uh, every security tool needs uh, continuous updates against uh, of, of uh, knowledge about new attacks, new variation of that. 
Okay, so when you are in the perimeter, it's easier to push them into the endpoint. What what do you do when everyone are outside? You have less control on the endpoint. You don't know what's going on there. Where well, maybe it's a home computer. What do you do with that? So a big mess. Uh, I think uh, until today, the only partial solutions. Nothing is uh, perfect, uh, and keep uh, coping with that. But the, I think the interesting point there that everyone understand that this situation will uh, be with us. For, from now on, post-COVID. And that's the big change. That's what's so fascinating because it's not that the, the, the situation changed for you know a short duration or one year or two year duration. It's probably gonna be with us uh, onwards, uh, not because of necessity, just because we all understood that a hybrid work for home office is the right way probably to do. Right, right. I think this is uh, kind of a, consistent uh, feeling that I have when I'm uh, moving around the cybersecurity industry as well. We kind of look back at the last 40 years uh, and there's some who believe, and, and they may be right, that cyber crime and cyber terrorism, cyber warfare, all originated with the technology cycle that began 40 years ago when we introduced personal computers and that the root of all evil stems from allowing people to have personalized computing experiences. So you can imagine you know, what that means. It means that you know, we're living in a world of stupid human errors, and I think cybersecurity uh, recognizes that. Uh, fear, in fact, suggests that there's a relationship between uh, the growth in such errors, you know, of um, you know, working from home and, and creating more errors and more problems and stupid things that we do, whether it's allowing our children to use the same equipment that we use and then introducing uh, certain uh, malware or certain problems uh, because of that. You know, there's been a lot of talk that in order to stem this growth um, and control such problems, organizations should embrace this idea of virtual desktop infra infrastructure, or VDI. Uh, and some of the metrics actually suggest that more organizations are doing so in response to COVID-19, in fact. Um, do you have any insights around this VDI move as a cybersecurity strategy and maybe some of the things you've seen in the market? Uh, and, you know, what is, in fact, the security impact of VDI on a positive or negative and challenges you've seen from those who've already adopted it? Yeah, so, um, look, VDI is, a, of course, a non-infrastructure that was people uh, years ago. Uh, with the two main uh, uh, two main targets, one is to simplify operations, uh, manage everything centrally, and all that updates and things like that. And also from a security perspective, the notion that if you if the if you you have a more um, a centralized control over your endpoints, you can secure them better, and they are within the perimeter, uh, and the user can connect them from the outside and all that. So we had that uh, in the past, and now to a certain extent a market that was uh, slowly growing, but uh, many use it partially. Now, when uh, Corona came and everyone went out, it was obvious that VDI is one of those elements that can dramatically improve uh, coping with the situation, both from operational perspective and also security perspective. So we've seen a customer who already used uh, VDI expanded dramatically the usage of that, uh, and we've seen customers who did not use VDI rushing to to implement it, but it's uh, quite it's not easy. It's uh, implementing VDI in organization. It's a whole project. It can take a year uh, to do that. So, but they have to do it fast. One of the elements that we've seen is that uh, recent years, 
in the last two years, I think uh, uh, we've seen a, a new way of delivery of VDI through the cloud, right? Uh, we've seen uh, a VMware, we've seen Citrix, we've seen Microsoft investing a lot in delivering VDI system through the cloud, through the public cloud. So if you do that, kind of you, you can implement it in a quite fast way. So we've seen a lot of movement into VDI and people thought, yeah, that's gonna, you know, secure us. But uh, that is obviously not enough. And using VDI helps you that much uh, and a lot of exposure for the VDI use case itself. Uh, and also for the person who is working with the VDI on the edge, on the other side. Uh, for example, uh, if you're uh, using your laptop to connect to, into a VDI system, uh, okay, you, you may think that nothing can happen on the endpoint because everything you do is done on the, you know, the machine in the organization. But guess what? If uh, for some reason uh, someone was able to put a, a keylogger on your machine, you can take everything, everything that you type that goes into the organization, including passwords, right? How, so what do you do there? So you still need a, a protection on the edge machine. Uh, and again, the VDI itself is a lot of, a, a, it's a, at the end of the day, it's an endpoint. It needs to be protected like any other endpoints. And not only that, uh, it has a certain operational uh, complexities that a regular security system uh, dramatically reduced the productivity. So uh, VDI, to summarize, was heavily used uh, during Corona, and I believe that it will continue to be used, but it represents a, a new uh, kind of uh, needs in terms of security you know, to make sure that it's a secure the infrastructure. Sounds good. I want to shift a little bit uh, and in a way uh, talk about some ideas that we just talk about seemingly every day, uh, this concept of AI. And, and of course, Mark Gazit is the founder and CEO of ThetaRay, which is a AI deep tech company that is very actively helping expose a variety of financial cyber risks that include money laundering, fraud, and bad loans, which of course, I think we all understand what those issues are. Those are serious crimes. Uh, everybody knows that the bad guys are attracted to money and it's kind of like flies to manure, which means that Mark and his team are either cybercrime action junkies or they love playing with manure. Uh, it's not unusual to find a correlation between economic down cycles and increased criminal activity. And in fact, when times are tough, uh, criminal inner self is empowered to sprout what we might call chutzpah, which seems like an appropriate word uh, using, uh, to use, uh, given that I have three Israeli cybersecurity companies here. Uh, but even before COVID, uh, neobanks, digital banking, all of that was attracting criminally motivated innovation and real innovation. We're not talking about lightweight attacks. We're talking about sophisticated, innovative attackers uh, that uh, challenge our best cyber defenses. Uh, crawling through the action on the front lines between the good guys and the bad guys. Mark, can you tell us a little bit about some of the things that you've seen, the new changes, the challenges uh, in this COVID year, in this pandemic year? Absolutely. And um, you're uh, absolutely uh, right. Even uh, before uh, COVID-19, uh, the bad guys uh, were attracted to money, naturally. And you also mentioned the fact that 
the, 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 the original scene was uh, giving everybody ability to have computer on the desk and then connecting those computers. So everything is connected. And probably banks was the last type of organizations that uh, try to keep their branches and try to ask people to come to branches of banks and fill forms, etc. And of course, before even before COVID-19, digital banking uh, became available. Bad guys definitely wanted to use it. Uh, the sums are huge. We're talking about billions, if not trillions of dollars. So it's attracted uh, not only the most uh, chutzpah out of the bad guys, as you said, but also uh, it, it created a, a hunter um, uh, after the talent. So the most talented criminals today will do what they call financial cybercrime because the payoff is very high and the risk is very low. You know, the days of people uh, trying to come to a branch of a bank and threatening the clerks to shoot them up are over. It still happens in Hollywood movies, it's okay. <laughs> but in reality, it's such so much easier to put a server uh, in some remote country and the server will steal 25 cents from your bank account, but will use AI and do it hundreds of millions of times. And then they will disconnect the link, uh, still maybe 20 or 30 million dollars. And if you want to catch those guys, you know, be my guest. Governments do it. We know that North Korea, uh, they stole $1 million from Bank of Bangladesh using cyber attack on SWIFT network. Uh, it's happening, happening all the time. You would like to launder money. Again, it's so easy these days uh, to open accounts. Now, COVID-19 definitely accelerated this process. Because if historically banked, bank had an opportunity to tell you maybe to come to the branch of a bank and to identify yourself today, it's much more difficult, if not impossible. You can be in Israel, but you have a bank account in the United States. What do you do? You cannot travel. So banks have to uh, create some level of trust. By the way, poor bad guys, quote unquote, poor bad guys, also suffer from the same phenomena. Historically, you could put some cash in your suitcase and travel if you wanted to, try to, to, to uh, uh, finance terrorist activities or, money or, or human trafficking. If you're not a big fan of cash, you could put some diamonds in a suitcase travel. Again, today it's impossible. So we have this huge problem of fantastic amounts of money moving between countries. It's $20 trillion in 2020. It will be $35 trillion in 2022. And the ability of banks to analyze this data, to understand what's going on, based on existing technologies that they used before, which were created for the traditional banking systems, whether it's rules, thresholds, signatures, becomes almost impossible. So uh, the only way we see that now uh, it's possible to deal with this type of uh, attacks uh, is by uh, uh, using artificial intelligence that mimics human intuition, that basically makes computers to think more or less like human beings, because we all know that the real attacks comes from the places that you least expect them to come. And because everything now is connected, and as you said, everybody has access to computers, it's so easy today to conduct cybersecurity attacks and steal real money. And uh, last but not least on that regard, if you mention AI, one thing that people don't appreciate is that bad guys have access to artificial intelligence. They have amazing scientists. They don't follow any rules. Sometimes they to take professors and give them proposals that can't refuse, quote unquote. And uh, so they have access to technology. And we as, you, we as good guys have to use the best technology possible to protect ourselves.
You know, you, you mentioned some numbers that are simply uh, just too big to put my head around. And when you talk about market opportunities that are in the trillions, uh, you know, certainly uh, that is incentive to build a corporation, right? So the bad guys are certainly building some of these corporations, but you, you, you yourself are working with some of the most uh, technologically advanced global banks, some of the biggest banks in the world. And, you know, they're counting on you to help them stay ahead of these financial losses, the embarrassment that comes from the financial and cyber crime that they experience. And, you know, you must have a lot of sleepless nights, but also probably some tremendous highs from the work that you and your team have done stopping the bad guys. I'm wondering if you could actually get into uh, a story or two and, and uh, you know, share that with us, because I, I think that'll be fascinating. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and you know, these bad guys become bolder. And because it's cybersecurity and because it's all remote, they also know that the price of failure is much lower. They can't be physically arrested. Um, and it's a specific work to work with those banks. Some of them went public about the work they do with us, like Santander. But some of them, of course, keep it uh, more confidential, so we'll not mention names. Uh, but yeah, sometimes we work very hard. And then, for example, we identify networks of tens of thousands of people financing ISIS. Now, when you look at those transactions, it were different accounts. Every transaction was very small, you know, $10, 15 Swiss francs, uh, 8 euros. Uh, but when you, uh, and, and they all look different. And they're all coming from different places. But when you uh, take artificial intelligence that combines all those transactions, suddenly you see tens of millions of dollars flowing uh, to finance terrorist organizations. And obviously, uh, our system helped bank to identify it. And then... Uh, Law enforcement agencies went in and luckily for us totally stopped uh, this type of activity. And uh, I think each and every one of us, uh, especially Israelis, but all around the world, could be influenced uh, by this ability to finance uh, financial organizations. And uh, it was almost impossible to identify those transactions because they were really different. Another one is uh, human trafficking. One of the banks that we worked, uh, we found very, when I say we, our artificial intuition uh, system found different set of transactions, again, in, in hundreds. And we found that they actually all were about uh, human trafficking, poor girls that were sold, sold from uh, one of the Eastern European countries. Uh, so, yeah, it's true. You know, we catch bad guys, by the way. In this case, Interpol went in and uh, took care of it. Uh, and we know for sure that uh, we did it before the girls were uh, uh, um, transported. I don't know if there's a better way to describe it. Um, so definitely, definitely, you know, there's a huge excitement and uh, the understanding that we make a world uh, a, a much better uh, place. And you're absolutely right. When there's a downturn, there are more people that uh, join those bad guys when everything is connected. Uh, the, the, the way to transfer money is easier. And we just need to remember that behind those uh, you know, scientific words, cybersecurity, uh, financial cybercrime, etc., sometimes there are real lives that have been affected. And uh, it's great to make, uh, to make those lives uh, better. Absolutely. Uh, sounds uh, truly fascinating. And this talk of cybercrime, however, makes me think about the different roles that are played by both police and military. In both organizations, we find 
the offensive and defensive activities, and they range from protect and serve, which of course is the logo of the police, and peacekeeping, and active defense, and proactive strikes, and these are terms that we sometimes hear in the cybersecurity industry as well. There's probably a fine line, sometimes not so fine line, between many of the roles played by police, a civilian service, and military national security service. Different times we've talked about having offensive cybersecurity as the pandemic has played out this year, we saw many different ways in which the political leadership, in fact, attempted to leverage these services in our international battle against coronavirus. Some have been more successful than others. Um, I'm gonna start with fear. I'm gonna talk about, I wanna understand this role that police and military have, the metaphors that we've been using over the many years to explain cybersecurity. Um, maybe you can help us understand the differences between these approaches. And looking backwards, um, which approach do you think was more successful in response to this year's pandemic-related cybersecurity threats? So, so I, I think again that that um, the, 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 it's depend. It's all depend about the, the attack vectors. So, if we are talking about uh, the necessarily to to protect our boundaries uh, from external attackers. Naturally, we need to wear the hat of a military, uh, a military person. We need to be able to uh, use uh, uh, tools that will allow us to put the attackers as far as we can. When we are looking about the insider threat, when we are talking about the attackers that is already inside the network uh, and might harm one of our uh, major systems or our file storages uh, where we keep or our crown jewels, or if we are talking about one of our employees that is using the data either in a not careful way or even about to leave the company, um, doesn't know what's going to happen with him because of COVID-19, maybe he's confused because what something happened in his house and he's deciding to take massive amount of data before he leaves the company, that needs a completely different approach. Um, and, and military tools will not help. You cannot, uh, uh, you know, shoot with a tank on a school, um, even though there is might be uh, some some very uh, exposure, big exposure happening inside. So the, the approach need to be different when we are talking about different um, attack vectors. And when we are talking about insiders, we need to wear a policeman hat. We need to explain. We need to, to uh, present what would be the punishment. We need to train and, and, uh, and uh, give uh, also some good sign or a warning if it's needed. Um, but, but it's need to be with education, with uh, bringing the people in and understand what is our expectation of them and the capability to put the security cameras as well, to understand that if something happens, if something bad is happening, that we need to be involved, we need to explain, we need to warn, and sometimes we need to take action. So Renan and Mark, same questions. Are you aligned with fear or do you see things differently? So shall I jump first? Uh, just because I'm not muted and Renan is. <laughs> Uh, it's always a challenge uh, using Zoom, Zoom meetings. So I am very much, um, I am very much aligned with Kfir, and um, I think that uh, the role of law enforcement agencies is changing now. Ron, of course, you know about my history and past with those uh, agencies. I think again, before COVID nineteen, they all understood 
that the world is changing. And they all understood that uh, one of my good friends was head of the, uh, one of the uh, European uh, top security agencies told me, look, you know, we have dedicated people that come 7 a.m. They drink coffee all the day. And then maybe they will uh, work till uh, 7, 8, maybe 9 p.m. And then they go to sleep. And they said, our clients will wake up at uh, 3, 4 uh, p.m., will go to the, to the uh, closest uh, uh, internet cafe, they will take vodka Red Bull and they, start, and they will start their work. That was before COVID-19. Now they're doing it from home and everything is connected and the technology is there and the encryption is there and the know-how is there. So I think that government agencies understand uh, more and more that should re they should uh, uh, be able to build uh, tools and legislation that will allow them uh, to identify uh, this type of activities. They should uh, count more uh, on technology. Um, and uh, you see more and more people that become computer savvy uh, in law enforcement agencies. I have to say that there is a caveat here, though, and I will give you exam again an example. You ask me to give real examples. So give me an example. Uh, in our, we found that our system, when we use artificial intelligence, in many cases identifies uh, money laundering 70 days before the actual attempt to withdraw money from a bank and conduct a crime happens. Now, on the other hand, we don't want to be in, you know, a world that is like a minority report for those of you who have seen the movie. So police departments, um, uh, security agencies, they can't just count on computers to uh, indict people. No, none of us would like to be in a situation that suddenly some algorithm decided that the where somebody is guilty and then this person goes to the jail. So I think that it creates a challenge for law enforcement agencies and we see it with many regulators, how to use technology, but make technology fully explainable and transparent. For example, AI is an area where you don't necessarily know how decisions being made. For example, um, you say, Alexa, turn on the lights. You don't care if, why Alexa understood you. You just knew, use what they call neural networks and deep learning, et cetera. But when it comes to law enforcement agencies, you have to be able to explain each and every step. And uh, usually when we start this type of uh, uh, discussion uh, with regulators, with government agencies, first we say, look, we understand that black boxes are not good for you. Let's talk about glass boxes. Let's talk about transparency. Uh, so to summarize what I said, I very much agree, agree with fear that uh, like anybody else, law enforcement agencies are going through transformation that's been extremely accelerated uh, by uh, COVID-19. And I think that there will be more and more scrutiny to see that those technologies that we use in day-to-day -day life uh, will be explainable, uh, will be transparent, will be able to uh, also um, uh, withhold the scrutiny of uh, uh, judges and courts, which I think is the right direction. Yeah. Um, in fact, just to add a quick comment there, I've been uh, excited to see that in the area that you serve, uh, the financial services, the regulators are uh, finally coming up to speed when it comes to yeah. some of this deep tech technology that uh, innovative companies like Theta Ray are introducing. Uh, Renan, did you have anything uh, you wanted to add to that uh, thought? Yeah, I, I, I will, yeah, I would add from a bit different direction. Uh, you know, uh, even before COVID, we always just discuss about the that one of the major challenges defenders in cybersecurity have is that um, if you think about military, right, it's like 
uh, it's how to be in a defense posture, right? Uh, we always, always, we've been taught in the army that the best defense, you have to quickly move to attack, right? You cannot stay on the defense side because you always lose. Uh, but the challenge in the business world is how can you attack? You cannot attack, right? And if, even if you knew, if you could attack, who, who would you attack? We don't know who to attack. So it brought to the discussion a different term, which is a reactive and proactive, right? So if you cannot, if you cannot attack, uh, then you, 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 the best you can do, you should be proactive rather than reactive. You cannot allow yourself just sitting like a, a duck waiting for the, for the attack coming onto you and, and build the defenses and wait for something to happen and react. You need to be proactive. But the challenge is how can you be, what is, what's the meaning of being proactive in cybersecurity? Uh, that's one of the things that uh, Mofisek that uh, actually was built upon on the idea of being proactive with moving down defense technologies and all that. So, uh, and I think now with COVID, that even become even worse because uh, we all understood that we, again, we build those perimeters with those defenses being reactive all the time and suddenly, poof, everyone is outside. There's no perimeter anymore. Uh, you don't know what to protect. Uh, your, your employees are at home and moving around with the computers and your other applications are moving to the cloud. Uh, we had that before, but now everything is very intensive. So uh, that brought many, many to, th- to, to think that we have to change uh, our mindset uh, from a des- defensive reactive to a more proactive approach. And I think one of the interesting subjects that came up is, uh, or uh, it became more intensive way is the zero trust architecture discussion, uh, which is a kind of a, 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 a method I would say that uh, can cope with this uh, new environment, new reality, where uh, everything is dispersed, everything is outside. You cannot think about any perimeters. You don't have this military camp that you are protecting. Uh, everyone is outside, and now you have to think differently how you protect. So zero trust is an interesting um, uh, architecture. Uh, lots of vendors are moving there. Uh, and uh, and I think that's something that we'll see uh, evolving uh, strongly uh, because of that. So that's interesting. We you're starting to touch on some of these direct and long-term changes in cybersecurity that COVID nineteen has brought about, and you've been engaged in the industry across many verticals for a long time. I'm just wondering, you know, on the basis of this. Uh, uh, these direct changes that you've talked about. Has COVID driven other changes uh, in cybersecurity consistently across all verticals? Or you know, if not, which sectors are actually experiencing the greatest impact? And why do you think that's the case? Uh, yeah, so uh, I think we, we've seen two uh, interesting segments, which uh, we didn't think about it before, uh, that they become uh, highly attacked. Uh, one of them is uh, healthcare. Healthcare always was a target, but I think it's tripled it now. Very, very intensive. Uh, and we see lots of successful attacks coming there. And uh, we get a lot of calls from customers that are in panic. Uh, we've been in a, you know, never ending sales cycles with them. And suddenly, hey, we buy now. <laughs> because, you know, shit, we heard about, you know, the other uh, 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 hospital there in the other county that was just a hit. Uh, and uh, so that's, that segment is dramatically 
uh, raised in, this, in the area of cyber attack. I, I don't have an exact answer can, uh, why. I think uh, those uh, organizations traditionally were not sophisticated, uh, very exposed, uh, and suddenly they become a very easy attack, and especially uh, they're in turmoil, right? They're working so hard, they have so much load on those organizations today, uh, and I can assume that their IT systems and security is collapsing, just collapsing from the load, from the diversity they have to deal with. Uh, so that become an interesting uh, segment. And the second one, again, very surprising, in the, especially in the U.S., is the uh, education system, the K-12 and all that. It tripled, attack tripled. And there, the, the most probably the, the reason is the uh, remote remote learning, right? All students now are connecting into the schools, organizations remotely, and no one is prepared. This movement outside opens many many doors, and they're just jumping on that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and this organization, they're not sophisticated. It will take them time, and you know, if you ask for ransomware, they will probably give you the ransomware. It's, you know, there's a certain irony to hear you call out the healthcare industry in a pandemic year. Um, do you think that the response in the healthcare industry, uh, and maybe education as well, uh, has been adequate, or is there a lot left to do? I'm a healthcare CISO, uh, Chief Information Security Officer. What do I need to include in my 2021 resolutions? We're at the end of the year. We're all making resolutions. What are those guys going to be thinking about? So, uh, they have, of course, they have to strengthen what they have, and they have to do that in a, in, not in the traditional way. They, they, you know, they, the first uh, uh, action someone will do when he's under stress, he will try to build the defenses he knew in the past or he had in the past. But as we just spoke, they are less relevant today, less relevant, and they need to think about uh, more innovative ways uh, and approaches, again, being proactive, uh, applying preventions method and things like that, uh, and and their challenge is also uh, again those uh, many of those such as healthcare uh, security is not a business right financials and banks and issues this is part of their day to day they have lots of teams heavily heavily invested they have SOC analysts and all that. Healthcare will never have that. Education will never have that. So they have the challenge of finding effective systems which are easy, uh, are easy to operate. And this, as you know, in security, <laughs> it's, a, it's a magic uh, formula. So it sounds like uh, making security uh, uh, simple is a uh, way forward for all these cybersecurity companies. Exactly. I want to get a little bit more personal before we uh, uh, begin wrapping up. Um, all of you are, of course, responsible for important category-leading cybersecurity companies. MBA 101 teaches us that you all have responsibilities to your employees, your investors, and, of course, your customers, right? That's the first thing you learn in business school. Um, but there's no MBA course, or at least there hasn't been in the past. There might be in the future, uh, which, of course, we'll have to do over Zoom. But there's no MBA course to really prepare anybody for a pandemic, and let alone CEOs. So I'm really interested in hearing your own experiences, how each of you might have read the economic uh, signals, the business tea leaves in the first quarter of 2020, and then how you actually led your companies through the pandemic. And you know, did COVID-19 affect your business models? Were you forced to scramble to create 
uh, new business plans? Uh, did they impact some of your product roadmaps? And you know, did COVID-19 provide new opportunities that you wouldn't have had had um, the pandemic uh, not happened? So I'm really uh, interested in hearing from all of you guys, actually. So round robin it, uh, whoever wants to go first, feel free. So, yeah, I can jump I mean, in. Yeah, yeah go, ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Please, I, I was just speaking. Please. <laughs> okay. So um, I, I think that it's related to three things. First of all, um, when it's coming to to customers, you know, we look at the opportunity, and and uh, luckily for for us, we are in uh, creating the next generation of the of the DLP. And, and traditional DLP were so hard and so complex and so expensive. So companies that even started uh, a DLP project and just in the, in the beginning stages of the classification and look how, you know, how bad and how long it's going to happen, you know, they're coming to us and, and uh, know that they can do it in much faster way with much lower budget, make it uh, much more appealing to them uh, to work with a startup company, um, and uh, and and that create a very big uh, opportunity for us, and we see, you know, a, a spike of of, of three hundred of six hundred percent in in the last quarter, uh, coming because because of that. Um, from the other perspective, we are talking about investment, and and luckily for us, we did a, a short investment right before COVID started. But we are definitely looking now uh, to do another round to make sure that we are safe for the next uh, 24 uh, months and can grow faster. So we are definitely looking at that if we weren't expecting to do financial round during uh, uh, 2021. Now we are uh, working on that intensively to start doing it in, in Q1 2021. Um, and for the third part is of course our employees which brings two, two different uh, things to the, to, the, uh, to the stage. First of all, workforce. Uh, uh, we see a lot of uh, opportunities in bringing more people in, very good people uh, that can join in both from the, from the technical perspective and also from the sales um, perspective. Uh, we see, uh, we see uh, uh, increasing in, in the amount of potential employees and uh, employees that, uh, that would like also to work on, on, uh, on success fee which we haven't seen in the past in, uh, in such uh, large numbers. Um, so, so I think that those are the three major changes that, that we see that we're trying to, to work with it. And, and uh, we hope that we build something that is strong enough to keep, uh, to keep um, growing in, uh, in this uh, COVID time. Mark, Ronen, uh, any thoughts? Please go. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Ronen. So um, definitely when COVID-19 started, and as you said, uh, you know, they don't teach you in Harvard Business School about uh, uh, COVID-19. Uh, but you, you know, you also, you always have this sort of two tendencies and as a CEO, uh, I, I found that I always need to deal with short-term, long-term growth versus profitability, etc. And here, a new crisis comes. So first, we braced for impact. We reduced costs significantly. We said, let's make sure that we have enough financing, started financing round immediately, uh, and evaluated all our current customers. And then when the fog 
went down a little bit and we understood that COVID-19 is with us uh, to stay. It's not something that will disappear in a month or two. It was uh, back in uh, April. Uh, I actually took another quote by Winston Churchill that said, uh, never waste a good crisis. Uh, so we said, this is a crisis. So let's see what we can do. And then we just started to listen to our customers and ask them and look at them and to see what's going on there. Uh, and we found something very interesting. On the other hand, their business model is changing. For example, um, when we install our system, it's usually a big project, long deployment cycle, a lot of integration with internal systems. They just cannot do it anymore because people are at home. And banking system is not something that you can do and replace remotely. So it was a surprise for them. On the other hand, we found that although some of the projects going slower, actually everything that comes to international transactions is growing. And um, in some cases, uh, banks told us, look, let's slow down the project a little bit. But when it came to correspondent banking, they all told us, look, we want it yesterday. We need it now. And we said, look, if something good is happening to them, then let's focus on that particular area. I can tell you that we did more deployments uh, during the COVID time, COVID time that we did uh, for the, uh, the entire 2019 because they really needed solutions that are working, deployed, uh, and uh, active. And of course, we also had to change our sales model. We love meeting people. We sell trust. So building trust relationship is extremely important. But how can you do it when you can't even travel and meet with people? So uh, we definitely created more uh, events, virtual dinners, and we can talk a lot about it. Uh, also, you know, ability to take the company, to build the company, to keep it together uh, every uh, week. Uh, we always had a, what we call happy hour, all hands. Now it's religious. We do it and people connecting from all around the world. Um, so in a nutshell, I would say that uh, we, we do look at it as a, an opportunity. Uh, it's not a secret. Again, I mentioned Santander because they made it public that their digital banking business grew by 40% during COVID-19, and we are lucky to be in heart of it. So uh, we look what's working. We try to invest more in those areas. We try to find constantly things that are not working and try to not invest in those areas. And uh, the most important is to keep in touch, to keep in touch with our customers, with our shareholders, with, our, with other stakeholders, and of course, to make sure that all the employees uh, keep in touch uh, constantly. Yeah, so from operational perspective, um, more this, the same as uh, Mark just mentioned. Uh, I can add to that that uh, uh, with all, all the, those actions that you mentioned uh, internally, we also uh, uh, thought, okay, you know, how you use, as you mentioned, every crisis is, is an opportunity. Uh, what do we take out of it uh, post-COVID? Because we quickly understood that uh, the way we work will change. So let's start now or get organized for the day after. For example, uh, R&D, everyone are using uh, desktop. We moved everyone to a laptop. It's a big project. Uh, that gave a lot of flexibility about how you, how you work with them. Uh, because we, and we started planning how the office will look like, how we do the shift within people the day after and start implementing it now. 
So that's the, you know, kind of looking from operational perspective, look at the opportunities uh, that COVID brings in. From a customer perspective, of course, every crisis is an opportunity as well. So we try to see where the opportunities there, work from home, of course, is an opportunity. We understood quickly that going out is, is a major issue. So we came out, of course, quickly, like everyone else in our, by the way, in our market, quickly with all kinds of offerings around, uh, around that, all kinds of promotion around that. And of course, and, and we were happy to see how it works. And we also, from a product perspective, we, for example, uh, did, that was the trigger for us uh, to move to cloud delivery, right? Our product traditionally uh, was in a, it's an architecture of a management system that is hosted usually on the on-premise because customers were worried about security and all that. Uh, but now <laughs> everyone wants to move to the cloud. Uh, so that was an opportunity for us to, to do that. We want to do that before, but we needed the trigger and that was the trigger and guess what? Now almost every deal that we do is a cloud delivered. Uh, so, uh, so that was also all kinds of issues around the product that we uh, uh, leveraged uh, because of COVID. And of course, uh, there was some, a lot of challenges. Uh, lead generation, very, very hard, very, very hard. People disappear. They are not, uh, the phone number in the office is not working anymore. Uh, people are registering to webinars because they're bored and they have time not necessarily because they want to buy. So you have a lot of garbage in your, in your lead generation. So a lot of challenges around that. Well, hopefully the people who registered for this salt talk are here to learn. <laughs> not the people uh, yeah. We're coming up to the top of the hour, and I really did want to ask one final question because I know that two of you, uh, Ronan and, and Mark, you were uh, uh, already out in uh, Abu Dhabi uh, earlier this year following the signing of the Abraham Accords at the uh, White House last summer. I'm aware, and I have been aware uh, for many years, that there's significant demand for cybersecurity solutions throughout the Gulf Cooperation Council, uh, especially in the financial, healthcare, and government sectors, which we've talked about uh, throughout this um, past hour. Given Israel's place as a global cybersecurity powerhouse, um, by most reports, uh, second to the United States, I'd be remiss if I failed to ask about the opportunities, uh, these new relationships uh, with the Gulf states and other states in that region uh, offer to your companies. And uh, you know what impact that's had on your sales and marketing strategies uh, or will have on your sales and marketing strategies. Um, this seems like, uh, maybe you have a different perspective, but it seems like the Abraham Accords uh, are a counterpoint to this uh, very challenging pandemic year. So really quickly, 30 to 60 yeah. seconds, round robin. Let's get your thoughts on that. Ryan, so, yeah, so so I think, uh, yeah, it, but first it was an extremely interesting, and we were, I think all of us were very proud to be there. We're highly exciting. And now from a, from a, a business perspective, in terms of security, um, it seems, you know, again, from a very initial uh, look, uh, it's a highly developed economic environment, right? Highly, highly, amazing. But it seems that they are in the early days of digital transformation. I would say maybe one step behind the US or, or Europe or something like that. That's what my feeling. And they definitely understand that the transition to digi the digital transformation uh, brings with that the, the risk of cyber. And they have to deal with that in, in the early days 
uh, of the implementations. And of course, they're looking for best of breed. They're looking for the best technologies and they're already you know, used to work with Israel, I think on agriculture and all that. And I understand there's a, a great opportunity here uh, because the, the reputation is cyber. So obviously cyber will be a, a hot topic, a nice business to do there. Uh, and I definitely foresee things will happen. Um, looking forward to that. Yeah, Ron, I think it's a very, um, a very nice uh, finish to this discussion because absolutely um, Israeli technologies and the, the growth of the market in UAE and the Middle East uh, thing, uh, and the cooperation, thanks to Abraham Accords, creates enormous opportunity. It's not that there were no commercial ties. Again, you know about uh, my past. Um, but now, at least for me, to make it formal, to make it public, to be there uh, not only as a business person that loves doing business in the Gulf, but to be there as an Israeli, having John Medved come in there, and of course being part of Royal Margalit's high-tech delegation, it's a totally different feeling, a combination of pride, uh, but also understanding that it's a huge and developing market. UAE looking at themselves as the next financial hub of the world, not only financial hub, but the financial hub of the world, in par with United States, in par uh, with London, in with Singapore and uh, Hong Kong. And I think that's also a gateway to additional uh, countries uh, in the Middle East and also to Africa as well. And it's only three and a half hours flight from Israel and it's almost the same time zone. So I think that not all the people appreciate the huge opportunity uh, that it created. I think we as in Israelis uh, really need to make sure that uh, we provide them the best solutions. I totally agree with everybody who said it's a very, very developed uh, economy. They know exactly what they're looking for. They're looking for the best solutions, a very advanced economy. Um, and I definitely think that the combination of their access to market and enormous growth and uh, Israeli innovation creates something uh, that uh, far beyond what uh, we really expect. This is the, in my eyes, this is the new Middle East, that where economy uh, drives peace. Well, I'm thrilled that we've been able to end on a high note like this. Uh, I think we've just got some really interesting and nuanced points today. I want to thank Fear, Ronan, and Mark for joining us. I know the demands of company building are many and more, and I really appreciate the time that each of you has carved out to share your insights. Uh, today, we've heard from three of our crowd's 200 portfolio companies. You can see more technology and startups and investment opportunities in both cybersecurity and many other sectors at ourcrowd.com. Thank you to our partners, Salt, and make sure you join us for the next installment on December 3rd. And thank you, Ron, for hosting us. Thank you very thank much. Thank you very Ron. much. Thank you.